We do turn now toward that portion of our service where we look at the words that God has revealed to us in His Word. Today we are in Genesis chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. We will read through chapter 37, verse 1. We're going to look at the genealogy of Esau and Esau's descendants. Once again, looking at names that are hard to pronounce. And we wonder sometimes why they are there. If we consider the structure of the book of Genesis, though, we always see the uh, genealogy of the unchosen portions of the family before we see the, the rest of the account of the chosen portion. We saw that in Cain's genealogy before the genealogy of Seth. We saw that in the genealogy of Abraham's brothers before we saw the life of Abraham and the genealogy of Ishmael before we considered the life of Isaac and now in the genealogy of Esau before we consider uh, the life of Jacob and his sons. So let us read the word of the Lord beginning in Genesis 36, verse 1. This is the account of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, daughter of Anna, and great-granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals, and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Eliphaz, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Ada. The sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, daughter of Anna and granddaughter of Zibion, whom she bore to Esau. Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. The son of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. Chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kanaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs' descendants from Eliphaz and Edom. They were grandsons of Ada. The sons of Esau's son, Ruel. Chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the chiefs descended from Ruel in Edom. They were the grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibamah, daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who, lived, who were living in the region. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These sons of Seir and Edom were Horite chiefs. The sons of Lotan, 
Hori, and Homam. Timnah was Lotan's sister. The sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. The sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. This is the Anna who discovered the hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his father Zibion. The children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama, daughter of Anna. The sons of Dishon, Himdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Kiran. The sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. The sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These were the Horite chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the Horite chiefs according to their divisions in the land of Seir. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela, son of Beor, became king of Edom. His city was named Dinhaba. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah from Bozrah, succeeded him as king. When Jobab died, Hushan from the land of the Temanites succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avith. When Hadad died, Samla from Masreka succeeded him as king. When Samla died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the river succeeded him as king. When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, succeeded him as king. When Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His city was named Pau, and his wife's name was, was Mehetabel, daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mizahab. These were the chiefs descended from Esau by name, according to their clans and regions. Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Aholibama, Ella, Penon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Imram, Iram, excuse me. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their settlements in the land they occupied. This was Esau, the father of the Edomites. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, as we consider this genealogy, we do ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts to you so that we might see you, so that we might see your goodness, so that we might see your grace, even in this long list of names. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Psalm 73 begins the third book of the book of Psalms. If you ever have an opportunity to read through the book of Psalms in a, in a, uh, a quick way, you'll notice that it's divided up into five different books. And Psalm 73 opens the third book of the book of Psalms. Now, Psalm 73 is an odd book in the book of Psalms because it is mainly, uh, mainly a collection of laments. Now, not every psalm in book 3 is, is a lament, but most of the psalms in book 3 are laments. And laments are exactly what they sound like. They are lamentations. If you've ever read through the book of Lamentations, there is one good verse in there. The rest of them are just the depths of despair and grief and sadness. Now, thankfully, not all the laments are the depths of despair and grief and sadness, but many of the Psalms in book three 
are psalms of despair. And it opens up with a lament. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph begins this psalm with a wonderful declaration that God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. But very quickly in Psalm 73, he gets to the heart of his dilemma. While God is good, as he affirms to his people, it seems that God is better to the wicked, to the arrogant. He goes through a list of what he sees as proof that the wicked and the arrogant are treated far better with God. He says they don't struggle with health issues. They don't struggle with the burdens of human ills. And he points out that their violence, their greed, their disrespect to God and others lead them to prosperity and abundance. He even says they are carefree and they increase in wealth. He even goes so far in the psalm to say that his pursuit of God, his pursuit of holiness, his pursuit of being pure in heart is a waste of time. Because while the wicked prospered, he suffered illness and poverty. Today's passage seems to be for us an Asaph moment. We've learned a lot about Esau. And what we've learned about him is that he is wicked. And yet here he is as a nation. Here he is with goods so big and so much that he has to leave the land where he is residing with his brother Jacob. So today we're going to to consider Asaph's question. As we look at the genealogy of the family of Esau, we're going to ask ourselves, why does Esau prosper when he has rejected everything from God? As part of the answer, we are going to briefly, briefly, briefly consider some textual difficulties in here. And then we're going to look at Esau's character and God's goodness. First, some textual difficulties. If you keep up with the names of Esau's wives in chapter 26 and chapter 28, you'll see that they're different than the names of the wives listed here. Critical scholars throughout the ages have said that that this is proof of errors in transmission or that this was a verbal tradition that uh, uh, details were lost as the traditions was passed down verbally, generation to generation. However, these options don't necessarily have to be the case. There are at least three other options to consider, the last two which are kind of related. The first option is that we have already seen in the book of Genesis several times that people during this time period would, would have name changes. Uh, throughout their life to to show changes in character, to show changes in the way that the gods have dealt with them. We've seen it already with Esau. Um, He ate red stew. He had red hair. And so the name of the people that come from him are the Edomites, which comes from the Hebrew word for red or Edom. We've seen it with Jacob himself, that Jacob was one who grasped, but his name is changed to Israel because God strives on his behalf. And so this may simply be a name change. The also th- the another thing to consider is that the wives listed earlier may have died unrecorded deaths. But this also leads us to the third one, since um, some of these people have uh, the same named uh, descendants, is that not only may have some of the wives listed earlier have died unrecorded deaths, but Esau may have had more than the three wives that are listed. Several of the wives uh, uh, 
ancestors are listed in the genealogy of the people who lived in Seir, the area that became Edom. And so Esau probably, as he conquered those areas, took other wives um, with the same descendants as the wives that he took there. Any of those are valid responses to somebody who says that we cannot trust this because the names are different. But whatever the case, whichever of those it is, or it may even be a different thing that we have not considered, the point is that we can trust the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is given by His inspiration so that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for all of the works that God has given to them. And the woman of God may be thoroughly furnished for all the works that God has given to her as well. Scripture comes to us from God and is trustworthy. And we should always look for simpler and more trustworthy explanations for some of these seemingly uh, contrary passages and understand that God is a God who has protected His Word for us. So, with that taken care of, let's look and consider Esau's character uh, in this passage and in the history we've seen so of Esau up to this point. Now, first, uh, we have highlighted for us uh, in this passage, once more, that God did not, re- or that Esau did not regard the wishes of his parents or grandparents in finding a wife. Whatever the explanation for the difference in names here for Esau's wife, what is highlighted by the author here and also in chapter 26 and 28 is the fact that they came from outside God's chosen people group. Esau did not go to Aram, Paran Aram, to find a wife. He found one from the Canaanites. And we see through the unraveling of Scripture as we go through that that was something that the Israelite people were not supposed to do. They were not supposed to intermarry with the people of Canaan. And yet we see that happen here with Esau. Abraham went to extreme measures to find a non-Canaanite wife for Isaac. And Esau would have known that. Isaac went to extreme measures to find non-Canaanite wives, a non-Canaanite wife for his son Jacob. And Esau would have known that as well. And in order to make up for his Canaanite wives, he goes out after an Ishmaelite wife. And so we see that Esau's character um, is not what it should be. We also see that Esau is a violent person. We have for us a list here of people who lived in the land prior to Esau arriving there. And we see women, not only for Esau, but through his son Eliphaz, Timnah, uh, his son Eliphaz's um, concubine, is the daughter of one of the rulers living in the land of Seir. And probably the way that that happened was Esau went in and conquered violently the land of Seir. We also see Esau's character in the fact that he abandoned the promised land. Much like Abraham and Lot, Jacob find themselves in a position where the land could not contain both of them and all of their wealth. Esau could have chosen to move anywhere within the promised land that Jacob was not. He could have gone up to Shechem where Jacob had lived before and his sons had eliminated all the males of the city, destroying the inhabitants of that area. There was water, there was grass, there was places there for his flock, but instead he chooses to leave. 
This is highlighted for us in verse 1 of chapter 37 that says, Jacob lived in the land where his father has stayed, the land of Canaan. We have this long list of Esau's descendants settling in the land of Edom, the land of Seir. We have kings that rule, descendants of Esau that rule outside of the promised land. And then we're reminded that Jacob stayed in the land that God had given to them. The author of the Bible Knowledge Commentary said, a promised spiritual blessing demands patience and faith. Waiting while others prosper is a test of one's faithfulness and perseverance. Jacob had been promised the land. And even though he was a stranger, even though he was an alien, he remained in the land. And instead of waiting on God for blessing, Esau went out and tried to appropriate it for himself. How often do you and I refuse to be faithful sojourners in the world and try to grab after the good life on our own? We hear often of people who claim to be Christians who abandon God's law because it doesn't fit the definition of flourishing and the good life that they think is theirs. And so they, they, they leave and they stop waiting on God to bless them. And as we compare Esau's character to Jacob's as it's revealed to us in this passage, we see that God calls us to wait on Him to bless us in the areas where He has placed us. As a, as a contrast to Esau's character, we see God's goodness. And we see God's goodness in His keeping of promises and in His grace. If we were to go back to Rebekah's pregnancy with Esau and Jacob, we would be reminded that Rebekah had this problem that these two babies in her womb were fighting it out for supremacy. And she was in distress because of the war that was going on in her womb. And she cried out to God, what is going on? And God answered her that there are two nations within your womb. We've seen the establishment of one nation in the birth of, of Jacob's sons. His 12 sons that came through Leah, through Rachel, and through the, the concubines. We have 12 descendants here that ruled uh, as chiefs, as what we would think of as judges in the book of Judges. We have 12 descendants of Esau that rule as chiefs given to us here. And so we see God keeping His promise to Esau, to Rebekah, and to Esau in establishing him as a nation. This is a nation that will be protected by God when the Israelites return. In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelites to treat the Edomites well. Because they are brothers to the Israelites. They are Esau's descendants and therefore are to be treated. But they are also a nation that will give grief to the Israelites throughout the history of Israel to the point where they mocked Israel when they were carried off into exile. In fact, they helped the Babylonians against their brothers and sisters. They helped the Babylonians carry them off. And so we see God promise destruction in the book of Obadiah. That's how you pronounce that word. There's a lot of weird names in today's passage, is there not? 
In the book of Obadiah, God promises destruction on Edom because of the poor way that they have treated his people. But we also see God's goodness in this, in God's common grace. What did God promise in the creation account of the book of Genesis? Go back these many weeks and these many months to Genesis chapter 1. And in the creation of humanity, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. And even after Adam and Eve sinned and brought death and hardship and pain to that process, he said there will still be children. There will still be fruitfulness. There will still be multiplication. It will be difficult. It will be difficult in the moment of birth. It will be difficult as we raise our children. But we will still have generation following generation. We see God's common grace to Esau in that from his humble and wicked beginning, a great nation comes forth. We see from our, our New Testament reading that the sun shines on the wicked as well as the righteous. The rain falls on the unrighteous as well as those who pursue holiness and seek to be pure in heart. God sends His common grace. And that's why we see, that's a portion of why we see the wicked prosper. That's a portion of the answer to Asaph's question. Is that God shines the sun upon the wicked and the righteous. God gives common grace to all of humanity. God showers some level of love upon all of creation. But we also see God's specific grace. Now, we do know from history and from the rest of the Old Testament that God orchestrated the destruction of the nation of Edom because of how poorly they treated the Israelites, their brothers and their sisters. But there's an interesting thing about one of Esau's descendants, a man by the name of Kenaz, K-E-N-A-Z. He's listed a couple times in today's chapter. We are told that later on the Kenizzites, K-E-N-I-Z-Z-I-T-E-S, the Kenizzites are descendants of Esau's sons, Kenaz. And why is that important? It's because after the establishment of Judah in the promised land, after the establishment of the kingship, David conquered the land of Edom. And yet the Kenizzites decided to become part of the tribe of Judah. God grafted in people who were not Israel. God took people who were not his people and grafted them into the vine so that they could become his people. God takes people who are rebellious against him, who are wicked, and he grafts them in to his people, into the vine. And so we see God's goodness in His specific grace that He offers salvation to those who are rebels against Him. He offers salvation to those who have sought anything except God's will. By the power of the Spirit, He comes into our lives. He changes our hearts so that we seek after the goodness of salvation, so that we seek after living a pure life, so that we seek after the things of God. 
And so in the life of Esau, in the descendants of Esau, we are done with Esau after today in the book of Genesis. We don't even have his death recorded for us. Many commentators think that that's because um, of his, his rejection of everything. Everything that his parents stood for, every promise of God, they, we don't even have his death recorded for us. And yet we remember that descendants of Esau were grafted into the children of God. God provided a means for salvation of people. So we've seen Esau's character. We've contrasted it with a little bit with Jacob and with God's goodness. And we're left here with Asaph's question, why do the wicked prosper? It is a timeless question. Many of us ask it today as we suffer with difficulties, as we struggle to pay the bills, as we struggle with our children, as we struggle with our life. We wonder, why do those who reject God seem to be doing so much better? Nothing in this world affects them. They are wealthy and carefree. And yet here I am striving after holiness. And I'm poor and needy. Asaph finds the answer to his concern in the temple of God. He says that he entered God's dwelling place and he figured it out because he understood something about the wicked that they don't. Destruction awaits the wicked. He said once he understood their final destiny, he no longer wrestled with the question. One day the wicked will be held accountable for their greed, for their violence, for their manipulation, for their wickedness. Their prosperity will not save them from God's judgment. But Asaph goes on to realize something else in verse 21 of Psalm 73. He says, when my heart was grieved, when my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph looks at the wicked. And he says, they're senseless. They're ignorant. But when I let that make me angry and bitter, I realize something about myself. Deep down inside in my heart, I was just like them. And their destiny was my destiny. Aren't we like that? Aren't we oftentimes more like Esau than we are Jacob? We look at the prosperity of the wicked and instead of trusting God's goodness in our lives, we get jealous, we get angry, we get greedy, just like Asaph describes the wicked. Instead of remaining in the place where God has placed us as faithful, patient pilgrims, we abandon the place where God has placed us and, and, and think and seek after what we think is good for us. You and I are Esau. You and I need God's goodness as much as Esau did. You and I need God's goodness to avoid the final destiny of the wicked as much as the wicked do. And how do we react when God puts that, wick, that goodness in our lives? Do we, do we embrace bitterness or do we embrace grace? Do we embrace anger or do we embrace love? Do we embrace violence or do we pray for our enemies? God calls us to love our enemies because He does. God calls us to love our enemies because at one time we were God's enemies and He loved us. 
We are called in this passage, in this list of names, to be faithful. We are called to be patient with what God has given us as we await the day when we receive our glorious reward because we have been grafted into God's presence. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank You for this reminder of Your faithfulness to all of humanity. This reminder that You are gracious in giving all of us the sunshine and the rain. We also thank You for this reminder of Your plan to graft those in to the vine who do not belong there. And that includes us. So Lord, we thank You for our salvation. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.